Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. First thing I want to do this morning is share 10 words that can literally and thoroughly transform your life. I'm not exaggerating, not even a little bit. I believe that these two short sentences of five words apiece have the power to kind of reboot your soul on a regular basis if you believe them and if you see them and say them regularly enough that you don't forget them. They're not new words. They're not magic words. They're words most people in the room will be familiar with because they come from one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, Psalm 23. I am talking about the opening lines. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. The relationship between the two phrases is obvious. The first is the basis for the second. So the first, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord. In Hebrew, the word Yahweh. The name that God gave himself when Moses asked him, who are you? As he was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. A name that means I am. I am the one who is. I am the one who is what I will reveal myself to be. Yahweh, the name of God. And of course, from the span of the scriptures as a whole, we know that this is a word that comes to refer to Jesus. The God most clearly revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord, and the Lord is the shepherd, is what this says here. Shepherd, in this context, is both a literal description of someone who looks over the sheep and also a metaphor for the king in Israel. Now, most ancient cultures didn't think too highly of shepherds, but Israel had a high appreciation for them. Why? Because David, her greatest king, had also been a shepherd, and he was a good shepherd, and he was a good king. And so in this context, to say that the Lord is shepherd speaks of him as king, authority, leader, boss, but a certain kind of authority, one that cares for those underneath him, one that looks out for and protects and sacrifices his own well-being for their sake. The Lord is the shepherd, and not just the shepherd, but David says, my shepherd. And in this personal pronoun, he includes and speaks for all of us who share his faith. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the first five words. Second five, I have everything I need. And maybe you learned it or saw it on the wall in the old King James, I shall not want, or maybe a newer translation, I lack nothing. Those are fine. I like to say I have everything I need. That is what Psalm 23.1 is suggesting to us. That is a powerful set of 10 words. Satisfied. That's the one word I kind of want to hold before your minds and imaginations as we talk this morning to have everything you need. We all know it's common knowledge that one of the things that unites us as human beings is desire, specifically the desire for something that we don't possess. We long for and search after something that we want but don't quite have. Our stories symbolize this desire in all sorts of ways, typically as an object or a place, and so you have horcruxes or infinity stones or the fountain of youth or Atlantis, and I realize all of these have their own unique independent local flavors, but notice what holds them all together. If you find this, then you find everything you need. The actual concept goes by different words. In the Bible, in the ancient Hebrew cultures, it tends to be described using words like blessed or blessing. Aristotle, in the Greek side of things in the ancient world, used this word eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness. He said, this is what everybody seeks, sometimes translated well-being. 
At times, this concept devolves into something like pleasure, but usually we give it a more robust sense with ideas like meaning and purpose. And there's no one word that encapsulates all of it, but on any list of such words, you will probably find the idea of satisfaction. To have everything you need and to know that this is the case. That is something that each of us hopes to find. I believe that Jesus, I believe with everything in me that Jesus opens up the only reliable path to lasting satisfaction. Now, and I want to be careful and I want to be clear. I don't want to oversell or overpromise. I'm not saying that if you believe in Jesus, all your problems should be gone. Not even close. And I'm not saying, if you're a person who doesn't believe in Jesus, I am not saying if you put your faith in him today, everything goes away immediately and all is well right here, right now. No, that's not what I'm suggesting to you. Now, a bunch of, the, of what Jesus provides for us is an eternal hope that we look forward to, that we anticipate, and that we know in preview form. But that hope is real, and it will come to be. And in the meantime, the preview offers us quite a bit. It is critical that we know and believe this, that we possess the kind of confidence born out of actual experience that Jesus satisfies. I don't know if you've noticed, but our world is not doing well. And I don't care what news station you prefer. I don't care what particular set of biases you can stomach. One thing we can agree on is that our world is not doing well. And I guess one silver lining is that the ways in which the Bible describes the plight of humanity don't seem over the top anymore. They don't seem melodramatic anymore. Confused, deceived, enslaved, foolish, evil, depraved. These words that at one point sounded like exaggerations now just seem to describe the realities in which each of us walk. And I think that what the world needs to see, what our world needs to see, is satisfied Christians. I submit that one of the world's greatest needs is that they interact with you and see that you are genuinely content in Christ. Now, of course, what the world needs more than anything is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus brings that Jesus was sent by God. God did not abandon the world to our rebellion, but sent Jesus to live and to die for our sins and rose him again to bring new life. And he has made this life available to us so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and begin being transformed as individuals and communities so that we live closer to the ideal for which God made us. I believe that the gospel is the answer to the problems, but the gospel sometimes has a hard time winning a hearing in our world. And this is not new, this has always been the case, and so practically speaking, while it's true that by God, let me put it this way, by God's plan, this is where we come in, because nothing sells like a satisfied customer. What our world needs to see is communities of believers who are happy to talk openly about Jesus, not because we're trying to win a fight or prove that we're right, but because we just think Jesus is worth talking about openly. Y'all feel me on this? I heard somebody read this verse the other day that I had not read in a while from the book of Proverbs It's a collection of wise sayings. This one's from chapter 27, verse 7. Here's what it says. One who is full loathes honey from the comb, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. Look at those words for a minute. If you're satisfied, then you don't need anything else. But if you're hungry, then you'll eat anything. And we are surrounded by friends and family and coworkers and neighbors who will eat anything, even the bitter things, and tell themselves it tastes sweet because they're that hungry. And what they need to see from us is people who see the food that the world has to offer and say, no thanks, because we're satisfied with the plate in front of our face. It's easy to forget what you have and to think about what you don't have but think you need. 
Like, who hasn't had the conversation with their kids? Like, maybe it's after a week of vacation, so you've taken them to the theme park, and you've given them cotton candy, and you've had fun, and they've stayed up late and watched movies and had slumber parties, and then after it's all over, they come to you and say, you know what I want to do next? And you just say, hold on a second. (laughs) I don't want to hear what you want to do next until I hear some thank yous for what we just did. And unfortunately, this is not something that we grow out of. It is easy for us to deceive ourselves into ignoring what it is we have and focusing on we don't have but think we need. What the heck does all this have to do with John chapter 7, which is what we're studying today? I believe we may beneficially read this text as a reminder that Jesus provides everything we need. I think you can lay Psalm 23.1 over John 7 and see this truth emerging from within its pages. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 7. Or if you want to tune your devices in that direction, that's perfectly fine as well. We're looking at John 7 for the second week in a row. If you weren't here last week, go catch up on part one when you have some time. If you were, you know that we looked at John 7 last week, and we kinda, we're not like looking at part of it last week and part of it this week. It's more that we're taking all of it each time and pulling some truths out of it. And when we focused seven days ago at this very same, pl- very same place, we focused on the demand that Jesus places on our life. And what he demands is faith, pretty radical faith, in fact. Because what he says here in this passage, don't forget what he says is, if you want to know whether or not my teaching comes from God, if you want confidence that I'm legit, just start putting my teaching into practice. Just take my words as God will and start obeying, start living, and the confidence will come later. Obedience precedes assurance. That's what we saw. And this is a radical demand. And I wanted to start there because I don't want to blunt that sharp force, that sharp edge of what this text does to us in our world today, 2018. But I now want to back up and I want to look at it again, not so much looking at what Jesus demands, but taking a good, long, solid gaze at what Jesus offers us. That's our focus today. So I'm not going to read the whole thing again. I encourage you to read it multiple times, but just remember the action. So it's around the September, October, uh, that time of year. It's in the fall, and Jesus is up north in Galilee where he lives with family and friends, and he's kind of laying low because the last time he was in the big city, they tried to put him to death. And so he's up north, and down south in Jerusalem, there's this party. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles. Huge party, week-long, big celebration. And Jesus' brothers are like, hey, you want to be a public figure? Why don't you go down to the festival and show yourself? And Jesus says, I can't go down there. You can go whenever you want. But I know if I go down there, they'll try to kill me, and it's not time for me to die yet. So you guys go. I'm going to stay back. And then the next thing Jesus does, this is crazy, he goes down to the festival, except secretly, quietly, where no one knows. And he gets there, and, and long story short, there's a lot of different confusing opinions. Nobody knows quite what to think of Jesus, and sometimes he steps up and says something publicly, and sounds a little bit weird, and then he'll sort of hide back out, and that seems a little bit weird, and then people will try to arrest him, and again, he'll say, my time is not yet here, or the text will tell us that they tried to capture him, but, but God sort of protected him from this for now, and then eventually we come to a point that I want to read. I just want to read at least a little bit of it in John chapter 7, starting in verse 32. So let's pick it up here. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him, that people were saying he's the Messiah, basically. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him, okay? Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. We mentioned last week that Jesus sounds a little bit like Yoda in John chapter 7. Verse 35 says, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? 
Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Almost looks like they don't quite know what to do with Jesus. So what are we going to do with Jesus? Well, I think that the larger point of the gospel of John in this section of him laying out the life of Jesus is he's showing in various ways that the whole story of God's purposes with Israel and saving the world, the whole Old Testament, comes to a fulfillment in Jesus. That's big picture what he's saying. And in John 7, he says that specifically about this festival of tabernacles, about this party. What he wants to do is show how Jesus fulfills the festival. Now, let me take a quick peek. It might be beneficial for us to get a little bit of context on this festival of tabernacles that is taking place in Jerusalem. So turn over with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 16. And we're going to read a little bit about this festival. It was one of the three big festivals where all the people from all over, no matter where you live, if you could, you were supposed to come to Jerusalem. This one's pretty well attended because the weather's great and who doesn't love a party? And you'll notice as we read this that part of the point of this thing was to have a good time. Deuteronomy chapter 16, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 17. Here's what Moses says to the people. So celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. So it's after the harvest. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. This was a week-long party, and today what I'd like to ask is, how does this week-long party point forward to Jesus? Now, I would suggest to you that it does this in at least four ways. We'll look at these four anyway. Number one, it shows us that Jesus offers salvation. Now, this point is kind of ironic for a number of reasons, one of which is the point actually comes more from what Festival of Tabernacles is not. This text makes clear that this Festival of Tabernacles was not the the time and place when Jesus was allowed to die. Multiple times in the story, Jesus doesn't want to go down there because why? Because he's going to die. Isn't that why you came? Yeah, but he can't die at Tabernacles. When Jesus is there, there's a little bit of chaos and tension, and they try to arrest him, but they can't arrest him. Why? Isn't that why he came? Yeah, but not at the Festival of Tabernacles. And the reason why he can't be arrested and killed at the Festival of Tabernacles is because by God's design, he had to be arrested and killed at the Festival of Passover. If this all seems very strange, the point is what these various things celebrated. Tabernacles was about celebrating the harvest in some ways that we'll talk about here in just a moment. Passover was different though. Passover was the festival where they celebrated the moment when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt. 
And I'm not sure if you've heard the story, but God's people were enslaved for many, many generations. And so God comes to free them, and he does all these crazy things to convince the king of Egypt to let him go, and he says no. And so the final act of God delivering them is an act of judgment on the king of Egypt, on the gods of Egypt, and on all the people who worship and follow these things. And what God says is, all the firstborn and all the families are going to die. Like tonight, that's going to happen. But he tells Israel, here's what, here's what you can do. If you kill a lamb, if you kill a perfect spotless sacrificial lamb and take that blood and brush it on the doorposts of your home, then when I come through, I will spare you from this act of judgment that I'm bringing on this place today. And so it became called Passover because it represents the blood of the lamb that saves us from judgment. That's when Jesus had to die because that's why Jesus came. Now, I don't want to labor this point too long because the focus of John 7 is tabernacles, but I do believe that this is part of what John wants us to get, which is why he keeps saying over and over, couldn't die here, couldn't be arrested here, time had not yet come. He wants us to grasp, even here in chapter 7, that the story that takes place later in the gospel of Jesus being put up on the cross hangs over the whole thing like a drape that makes sense of all the things that Jesus says and does. And I think, maybe you think I'm wrong, I don't know, we can talk about this later, I think salvation is like the ultimate example of a crazy good thing that is easy to underappreciate. It's easy to forget the condition that we would be in presently and in the future if it weren't for Jesus. And I want to be careful about soapboxing. I don't like soapboxing when it's inappropriate, but I do have to tell you, I don't know who y'all listen to or see on the internet, but I, just, I feel compelled to warn you a little bit, if I'm being perfectly honest, because it has become alarmingly popular to bag on salvation as if it is overrated or something. As if what really matters is the difference that we can make in the world here and now. As if what really matters is our efforts at justice or our growing of churches or whatever it may be. And it's almost like we have to like put down the idea that Jesus died for our sins and opened up a path to eternity in order to get people to move. And I'm just saying, I think this is a mistake. I think all the things that God has called us to do are wonderful. But I would implore you, do not trust a preacher who bags on salvation. Trust no man who doesn't make much of grace. Like That's the rule in life. And I get it, like I don't want cheap grace kind of gets taken advantage of. Jesus doesn't just provide fire insurance, you know what I'm saying? Like I get that, but the only thing worse than cheap grace is no grace at all. And when I hear this stuff, I find myself saying, what in the world? Like have you forgotten the situation that we're in? Eternally, we were destined for judgment, but now we're destined for an eternal blessing. And presently, we were stuck in this life of alienation from God, and now we've been invited to be called friend by him. Yeah, I get it. Like, there's more to Christianity than just salvation, but there's not less. There's not less. And I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. I know what I've left undone. I know the darkness that lies in my own heart. I know that I would often rather rule than submit. I know that I would often rather be glorified myself than deflect praise to the Most High. And so I need grace, and I'm pretty sure you do too. So soapbox over. Let's just remember it is good news that Jesus came to die at Passover. And part of what John wants us to see in John 7 is that Jesus offers us salvation. That is the starting point and the foundation for everything else I say. And the good news is there is even more. Or rather, let's put it this way. Let's flesh out what that means. Second thing I think we see here is that Jesus offers sustenance. You know what this means, things that sustain us. Jesus offers us with what is necessary to just keep going. Now think about this festival. Originally, as you kind of maybe picked up from our reading, this was a celebration of the harvest. 
Different festivals, different times of year. Some of them are for other things. This one is after the crops are in and the grain bins are full and the work is done. You just take some time to sit down, have a glass of wine and celebrate and worship. That's what this festival was all about. Worshiping God for providing the things for us that we need, food and drink. Look at, let's look at another text in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 23 has another description of the festival of tabernacles. And I wanted to take a peek at a couple of them so you'll see some of the variety. So Leviticus chapter 23, I'm just going to read a couple of verses for now, verses 39 through 41. Here's what, uh, here's what Moses says in Leviticus 23, talking about this festival. Says, okay, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month. Again, this is in our calendar. Our calendar is solar. There's this lunar. So September, October, somewhere in there. 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. Y'all just take a break. And the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Dance around with some leaves. (laughs) Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. The point of this festival is to have a party so that we remember that God has provided what is necessary for our sustenance. Why do we need a party? Because without parties, we forget. Moses says elsewhere, in Deuteronomy chapter 3 actually, when he's describing what happens, God is actually speaking through Moses to the people, and he's saying, I want you to remember on a regular basis, because if you don't remember, what are you going to do? You're going to forget. And he specifically says to them, here's what's going to happen. You all know you need me now. Like you can feel your need for me now, because you're in a bit of a bad way, and you need me to get you from A to B. There's going to come a point though, when you get to B and all is well, and your bellies are full, and your tables have more food, and the kids are smiling, and everything's great, and you're going to look around, and you're going to think, man, we did, we, we did pretty well for ourselves, didn't we? And you're going to look at those hands, and you're going to praise them. You're going to look at your feet, and you're going to praise them. And he says, you're going to forget that, like, I'm the one who provided these things for you, and so we have a party regularly so that you remember that this, comes, this stuff comes from the top. I think about James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. I think about Colossians chapter 1, which tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and through him all things were created. All things hold together. This provides the basis for what John tells us in narrative form, that Jesus provides all the good things we have. I'm not talking about the spiritual things, I'm talking about all the things. Jesus provides our physical and relational and all other manner of sustenance. Now, I, have a, I want to make this one pretty practical as I've been praying over this message and this text and what's going on. This is, this is where, as I, every time I came to this point thinking things through, I started to picture anybody who came in the room today thinking, I just need a little boost. I just need a little bit of like a, something tiny that I can add to my regular routine of walking with God. Just a little boost to my spiritual life. So here it is. If that was you coming in today thinking, I just need a little something I can do. Nothing too complicated, pretty simple. Here it is. It's the ancient practice of, very simple, sentence prayers. Just as you go throughout your day, pick a sentence and pray it throughout the day. Could be our Father in heaven. You just say that. Could be Lord have mercy. You just say that. Uncle Jesse style, you know. Lord have mercy. Anyway, uh, whatever it may, there's a number of different ways you could take this. I want to encourage you, though, to do this. It's probably the best one. Thank you, Jesus, for the, and then fill in the blank. Everybody say, thank you. Everybody say Jesus. Everybody say thank you, Jesus. 
If you just get into the regular habit as you go about your day, you could do this dozens of times a day. Thank you, Jesus, for the fill in the blank. Thank you, Jesus, for the sun. Thank you, Jesus, for the moon. Thank you, Jesus, for comfortable blue chairs. Thank you, Jesus, for balloons. I don't know, like whatever it is that you see. Thank you for the pepperoni pizza and the cotton candy and, you know, sweet tea and people named Randy. Like whatever it is, they just keep going and go. Every time you see something, you thank Jesus for providing that for you, and it will get you into this mindset of the Festival of Tabernacles, remembering that Jesus offers sustenance. Here's third one. Jesus offers guidance. See, the Festival of Tabernacles initially was a celebration of the harvest, but over time, there was some meaning added to it, which is why it's called the Festival of Tabernacles, and it became associated with Israel's journey through the wilderness from slavery in Egypt to the promised land where God promised he would take them. Let me let the scriptures speak for themselves in this regard. This is why it's called Festival of Tabernacles. Flipping back over to Leviticus 23, you can follow along. Here's what it says, verse 42. It says, live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the whole time during the week of this festival, you'd go out of the house, you'd set up a tent in the backyard, and you'd live in your tent. And you'd do this to remember that your forefathers were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and they were, driven, they were guided through the promised land, through the wilderness, to get to the land that God had promised them. That's, I think, the point of what's going on here. And here's the part where I'm pretty excited about, because I've never seen this before, this, this week thinking about this text. So you know how last week, if you were here, we talked about how Jesus does a bunch of weirdo stuff in this passage? He's just like, I'm not going down, but then I'm going down. I'm saying strange stuff. I'm all over the place. I'm hidden. I'm seen. I'm hidden. I'm seen. I, it just struck me. We talked about this. You noticed it just reading the text, even if you weren't here. What if this is on purpose? And what if the strangeness of Jesus' movement is designed to remind us of the strangeness of Israel's movement through the promised land? You know, they left Egypt and went to Canaan, currently Palestine. It's not that far of a journey. A week maybe tops. Took them 40 years to get there because God guided them all over the place through the wilderness every step of the way. And what if Jesus' strange movement is designed to show that he fulfills Israel's strange movement? And what if the point for us is if you want to experience the guidance that God offers you through Jesus, you just better be prepared because it's going to be weird. I think this is something we got to get used to. And I can easily get excited about this one because outside salvation, this is probably my greatest appreciation for Jesus is the way in which he guides me, the way in which he provides a voice that leads my way. Never tells me every step of the way. That's not how it works, but guides me as I walk through this path to the place where God is taking me. You better be fully prepared. You're going to do some strange things, things that don't make sense to the world around you, things like what Jesus did, all right? A to B, probably not a straight line, folks. Because Jesus has different goals in your life than just getting you to be. That may be your goal. His are more important. His are bigger. His are higher. It's going to look different. Second thing I think you need to know if you think about God's guidance is, I, just, I feel a burden to say this too, that listening to God's guidance, listening to the voice of Jesus is like a muscle. You've got to exercise it for it to work well. And I say this out of sadness for the many people whose faces I've looked in who said something like this. I tried to listen to Jesus, but he didn't say anything. And I don't want to disrespect anyone who's ever been in that place because I've been in that place too. But that's a little bit like me walking into the weight room, stacking up a bunch of weights on top of that bar, sitting down trying to push that thing and complaining about the fact that it won't even lift off the, off the bench. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, you can't just walk in 
and be a pro at something. And I think we do this with Jesus. Like I've not listened to him in the course of normal everyday life when things are going fairly fine. It just comes to that one big decision moment and now I'm like, all right, now I need you to talk to me. And we're surprised when we don't recognize his voice. So if you're in a place of crisis, ask him to speak to you. And ask others to help you discern it. I believe that Jesus is gracious and merciful and he wants to make himself known to us. He is not hiding in the dark. If you are in a good place, if you're in a fine place, if you're just in a normal routine place, practice listening to the voice of Jesus because even if you don't feel like you need it now, first of all, you're probably wrong. Secondly, eventually you will. Jesus offers guidance in our life the same way that God guided his people through the wilderness. And the fourth thing Jesus offers us is purpose. He offers us something to do. I want to take a look again at uh, the statement that Jesus makes toward the end of this festival. He says in verses 37 through 39, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, notice the details, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus has been glorified. The spirit has been given. This is here for you. Let me explain the context. As part of this festival, every day for the first seven days of the festival, the priest would lead a procession of priests and they'd take a, like, a, like a gold pitcher and they'd bring it over to this pool of water in Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam and he'd fill that thing up He'd carry that pitcher back over to the altar and he'd pour out that water around the altar. And the meaning is fairly transparent. If you're going to thank God for the harvest, you've got to thank God for the rain because without the rain, there is no harvest. That's why water was a part of this thing. But on the eighth day, they didn't take part in that festival because at this point, it's no longer about thanking God for last year. It's about asking God to bless us next year. And so over time, this became a way of looking forward to what God is doing in the future. And the water came to symbolize something. It came to symbolize that Jerusalem, when God restored his people, that Jerusalem symbolically would be this fount of water that would flow out to the whole world. Of course, Jesus fulfills this, that the water comes down from heaven. It was symbolized as this river flowing out to feed all the nations. This was the only of Israel's festivals where the nations, where the outsiders were invited to come in and take part because it came to symbolize through prophets like Ezekiel and Zechariah that God's blessing would flow not only to God's people but through them. And here's the crazy part. Yes, Jesus says that the water comes from him, but I do not want you to miss that he says the water goes through you. Yeah, you come to Jesus and drink and you're satisfied, but those who believe in him become those from within whom the waters come out to bless the world. And the idea here is not just you get to come and drink, but you get to offer the same water to other people. You get to be the means of God's blessing extending out into the world. And I know no matter what you do, no matter how much you love your job, whether your job is at a workplace or your job is at a home or your job is wherever, no matter what you do and spend your days, we all at some point put our head on the pillow at the end of the day and look up Sometimes with eyes open, staring at that ceiling fan, sometimes with eyes closed, and we say, what am I even doing here? Why am I even doing this? And I don't pretend that I could eliminate all of the frustrating aspects of your job. I don't think that's what Jesus wants to do, but I think Jesus wants to say, you are where I have you. I put you there so that you might be a conduit so that the life of God, the salvation and the sustenance and the guidance can flow to others through you. And look, I know you guys know these things. I know, I know that this nothing here is new. We all know that Jesus brings us salvation, at least offers it. 
We probably know that Jesus offers sustenance and that he offers guidance and that, and that he offers a purpose for our lives. So what's the point in reviewing all of this? Well, don't be fooled into thinking that knowing what Jesus offers is the same as enjoying what Jesus offers. And don't get duped into the trap of when you say, I, I, yeah, I know these things. Don't get duped into the trap of feeling like saying, I know these things is the same as yes, and this is how I live my life. I believe that God wants to use John 7 to help us take inventory.